Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you the rundown on today's lineup, let's take a minute to thank some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, a full-service, locally-owned grocery store and cafe. The cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some dining tables available, and you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, featuring both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Tina Haas Findlay, and Nick Leo. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. You can catch many of the performances on Noche's live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, later in the program, we're going to be talking with Francis Dickey, a dairy farmer from Jefferson County, about the... Um, way in which dairy farmers, large and small, are under attack. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in some detail. We'll also be talking with Dr. Charles Goldman, uh, analyzing the U.S. vaccine allocation plan. And since Charles uh, is loaded with political opinions as well as medical ones, we'll also talk with him about the uh, incidents at the U.S. Capitol building last week. And then finally, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about a film, Interreflections, which um, makes some interesting comments about agriculture, some of them Kathy feels maybe a bit short-sighted. But first, I want to welcome to the program Steve Hickenbottom. Uh, Steve is an organic farmer. He uh, voted for uh, Donald Trump, and he is uh, the second person to participate uh, generously in this uh, initiative that I've, I've announced to talk with 52 Iowans who voted for Donald Trump. Again, part of my motivation, motivation is to uh, dissuade those of you who want to believe that all Trump voters are bad people. I think that's just ridiculous, and I know enough Trump voters to know that, yes, they are not all bad people. Uh, and um, also, I think it's really important that we begin to create a common ground, try to find things we agree on so we can move forward together instead of divided. And finally, I think it's important to, um, to get the Democratic Party to understand that, you know, maybe there's a way that what, they, what a lot of Democrats believe in might actually make sense to rural Iowans if they took time to listen and maybe talk about it differently. Anyway, welcoming to the program, Steve Hickenbottom. Hello, Steve. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Ed? Good. Hey, uh, so uh, background here. Steve and I met over the uh, fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And Steve, you were even on the uh, lawsuit filed by landowners alleging the abuse of eminent domain. And I, again, commend you in the highest possible terms for that amazing commitment. And I, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, it didn't win. Yeah. But I believe, you know, your your opposition to DAPL was a lot of it had to do with uh, the 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 audacity of this private company coming in and taking your land. Right. Right. That and, was my biggest complaint. And again, you've got uh, a fairly a lot invested in your land. You've been an organic farmer for 40 years. 43. 43. Sorry. <laughs> no, how, that's OK. How did you get started? By accident? No, not really. Um, <laughs> you said I had... Uh, well, it started off probably a year or so before that. I was having trouble with chemicals working like they're supposed to. And then uh, when the draft first started, I got drafted and so did a cousin. <clears throat> and I ended up getting sent back to a, a reserve unit here in Iowa. And he ended up going to Vietnam. And a few years after he got back, um, he died from Asian orange poisoning. And so I just got to looking at some labels of stuff and realized that some of the things that were listed in, in Agent Orange were the same things I had in some of the stuff I was using. And I thought, this doesn't look real good. And so I just quit, which was 
like jumping off a cliff and don't know where the bottom's at, but it worked out. <laughs> Well, you've hit the bottom. I hit <laughs> the a, bottom. In a good way. In a good way. <laughs> yeah. And that's something you and I share is uh, we, we both farm organically. You on a much larger scale than Kathy and I. But uh, we share a concern about the environment. L let me just start by asking about climate change. Uh, I, I, you, first of all, I, I mean, you, you accept that something's going on with the climate. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we saw last year was incredible. We had the uh, one of the two warmest years on record including a record for wildfires, a record for Atlantic storms. Uh, it's really kind of accelerating. What do you think we can and should do regarding climate change? Well, <clears throat> I think basically we are doing a pretty good job here in the United States. Um, I think that probably our biggest problem is other countries and um, not even trying to do anything different. But, um, you know... No matter, no matter if we had all the oil in the world and all the things in the world, there's still no reason to not try to be conservative with what we have because we don't know how long it's going to, you know, we're going to have to have it. So I think that right. no matter what we do, we just need to be, be aware of that fact and not just be wasteful without any of it. I know you pointed out to me just how many coal-fired power plants other countries are still building. And again, that's one, that's one area in which the U.S. has done a good job recently. We've stopped building coal-fired power plants. Right. Um, and beyond that, I, I know that there are other things that you believe we could do. I know you mentioned uh, electric cars. Is something we could be investing more time and effort into? Yeah, yeah. the electric car thing is, is uh, but a problem there is, is that <clears throat> we went on to electric cars. The way the battery usage in the cars are today, we don't even produce enough to, to put the cars on the road in any given town if you convert everybody in the town over. So developments can be made to make the batteries, you know, uh, last longer charge easier, take less, you know, batteries to do it. Then maybe we need a solar panel on the vehicle to help charge the car while they're using it or something rather than mm. pulling off the electrical grid. So there's just, it's like everything. There's just a lot to be found out about, but you don't learn if you don't try. So yeah. it, it's moving ahead. It's just nothing ever goes as fast as we'd like for it to do. Right. You know, it's just it's how it goes. Now you were, uh, Steve, you were a Democrat a long time ago, I believe you told me. Yes. And what, uh, what changed? What, uh, what brought you over to the Republican side? Um, the change of policy that the Democratic Party was putting out. Such as? I, I don't really feel like that I left the Democratic Party. I feel the Democratic Party left me. I mean, things that, <clears throat> that we were on common ground for, they left. And on uh, those issues, I just couldn't support it anymore. Like what, what, some, what specifically are some of the issues? Well, you know, they were, um, oh, shucks, my mind just went blank. Abortion. Gay marriages. Um, Social issues. What about economic issues? Um, economically, <clears throat> they were well. The Democratic Party has always had a policy that they have more of a handout than a hand up, and I just felt like that they were setting the thing up to where the farmers, especially, were trying to live off these government program payments and stuff mm -hmm. instead of trying to figure out a way to uh, put. Um, what do you call them? Taxes, import taxes, you know, and stuff to, to get our prices so that the imports come in at the same price as our, our, our U.S. stuff was to help balance that out. Um, so you would be in favor of revisiting the uh, farm program and, uh, and policy initiatives that tend to give out a lot of money to farmers and, and even some very, very wealthy farmers. You would want to see that revisited. 
I, I yes, I would. I mean, there's there's you know what anything we do, there's going to be flaws, and anything yeah. we do, there's people going to figure out how to get around it. I mean, that's been forever, <clears throat> but I think that there's just been some gaps and different things that have just have been way. I mean, we we reward these mega farmers and we punish small guys. Yeah. So, and that that seems to be a problem across the political spectrum where you've got yep. uh, Republican support Republican support for policies that do that as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. No no that. The same bed, they both sleep in the same bed. I doubt about that. <laughs> so uh, the big news, of course, this past week has been what transpired at the U.S. Capitol. Um, there have been, you know, there's been lots of uh, Republican criticism of that as well. Uh, where do you, what do you, what is your take on on what some are calling a riot and an insurrection? Um, <clears throat> well, let me make it clear. I don't condone that. I don't want anybody that is a, as you'd call us, a Trumpers or um, Republicans, Democrat, anybody endorses what happened out there. Um, there's facts still to be figured out. There, there can be, I've heard that there's some other influences maybe that was in that group out there that day, and hopefully they will get it figured out. But um, it was wrong. That was not, that's not how we do it. And, right. mo- and most people you know in Southeast Iowa that also voted for Trump also feel it was wrong. Oh, yeah. I haven't talked to anybody that I know of, Democrat, Republican, Trump or not or whatever, never Trumpers. And no, nobody's in favor of that. Nobody. Mm. And I know that there have been some who have suggested that it was Antifa. But um, there's a lot of criticism about that allegation as well, including a statement from the FBI saying, no, Antifa was not involved in it. Well, there's some serious allegations against the FBI and CIA and stuff right now. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I mean, <laughs> we've talked about this. Where do you get the yeah. real story? Where do you get the real truth? Yeah. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a big challenge, I think, because I think a lot of times uh, folks are getting their news from totally different sources. And right. uh, what you see might not be what I see in here and uh, vice versa. So, right, right. Um, I well, know. This, is, this has been years ago, but I went to D.C. with the trackers back in the late 70s. This is in response to the farm crisis? Yep. Okay. Ag movement, the American Ag movement. And when I went out there, I was um, interviewed by a television station. And I gave them an interview. And so that night, when we went back to the motel room, I watched what we saw on TV and that was, and they and they had me on there doing it, and it was it was not what I said. They edited it to where it made it actually sound like opposite of what I was saying. And I thought, wow, wow yeah. How do you how do you do that? I mean, how can you be a news media person and twist that clear around? So, the uh, mega media sources, I have a real hard time with them. And but that was what, forty years ago, over forty years ago. Yeah, I, I have a hard time with uh, the mainstream media, as I as I call it as well, uh, and I, I do think, but but I um, no, I, some 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 I, I like to have as a broad a selection of sources as possible, but there are some exactly. there are some that I, I just don't find very. I mean, Fox News, I really have trouble with their bias. It just seems like they're always um, coming at uh, issues from a particular angle. They've they've got their perspective, and maybe you could say this about other sources as well. But they've got their perspective. They're going to write their story based on what they're coming from, and then as, you know, and and maybe less so the news department than the editorial department, like Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham. And I don't know if you you follow that uh, that brand as well, but that's that's an element that disturbs me somewhat. The way the way they handle it. Right. Right. Well, 
and and, and it's uh, I'll, I'll just say this: I don't think it's any more biased one way that on one team than it is the other. But um, Flashpoint the other day had a thing they showed the first of all they had they showed four buses being escorted in the back of this um, rally and full of either black lives or antifas or whatever supposedly we didn't get it you know we didn't go up and say who you associated with but that showed up there and then when they got into where the the bicycle rack things were you know the gates to hold them in one of the police there opened the gate and motioned for the people to come through and i'm going like why don't any you know my your fox your newsmax didn't show it and neither did the megan megan needs you i think i thought okay what how, how can this be how can you have one how can you have these news reports everywhere and they don't see this or they don't report it? How can that be? Yeah, and I, again, I, I will take the time to look up uh, that story. That's not, that's not one I've heard, but um, again, everything I've seen indicates that this was people who feel very strongly that the election was stolen and that uh, that perspective is in part, large part perhaps, enhanced by much of what the president has been saying before the election, after the election, leading up right to his most recent comments. And we may, we may have to disagree on that. I don't know. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and just, just one more thing, uh, Steve, is one thing that really has bugged me, and I think it probably bugs you as well. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe you know people who call folks from my side of the political aisle all sorts of vile things. Um, maybe you don't need to because there's plenty of people on my side of the political aisle who call me vile things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, some of those some of those hateful voices are from the political left and not just directed at people on the political right. But but here's one for you: people who vote for Trump need to get out of their little rural bubbles and see what is really going on in the rest of the world. I don't need to hear anything from those prejudiced, self-absorbed, me, 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 narrow-minded rubes. Well, there, Steve, that describes you, doesn't it? <laughs> Perfectly. Right. Oh gosh, I just you know, and here's another one saying you know don't you know you're either you're either lying to yourself or you're a complete idiot. Um, these are people who don't like what I'm trying to do, create this dialogue. Um, I will say, fortunately, it's the minority. Most people understand that we need to talk, but there's still a lot a large voice out there on the political left that are just going to dismiss this process as meaningless, and they're yep. going to dismiss you and anyone else who voted for Trump as a rube, as an idiot, as a self-absorbed me, me, me person. <laughs> so yep. Yep. I, I think maybe the best way we can fight back against this is to continue these conversations. It could very well be. I don't know. It's got to start somewhere. It usually doesn't start at the top. That's the problem. Yeah, I know. I know. It won't start at the top, I don't think. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Steve, we're almost out of time. Any, any last word for me or for our audience? I can't think of anything. I just, you know, we just got to be open and we gotta, we've got to watch various news media outlets and we've got to talk to people that don't necessarily agree with us because we're not going to anything fixed if we don't communicate at some kind of a level yeah well again i'm really i'm you know you've got me beat i've been i've been organic farming for 37 years and you've been doing it on a bigger scale for 43 years so my hat is off to you i i commend you for that and um and and thank you for your stewardship of our land well thank you and again thanks so much i hope we're doing the right thing you know well, at least uh, at least environmentally you are. I don't know politically. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you gotta yeah, you can't agree with everybody all the time. You know. All so. <laughs> right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Steve uh, Steve Hickenbottom. He's an organic farmer from Southeast Iowa. He and I first met back in 2015 during the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. When we come back, it's a good day for Jefferson County on this program. Uh, farmer Francis Dickey's going to join me. We're going to talk about dairy farming. 
and how dairy farmers are struggling to make uh, to, to, to kind of get the message across that what they're doing is not evil. Anyway, we'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to Bold Iowa, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water, Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful, nonviolent means to push for change. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Support also provided by Birds and Bees Urban Farm, teaching central Iowans how to turn their yards into dinner. As local food security becomes more and more important in the new climate era. You can get information at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, hey, let's welcome Francis Tickey to the program. Francis owns and operates Radiance Dairy, a local, organic, sustainable, grass-fed dairy in southeast Iowa. The farm is known statewide for integrating a Jersey cow herd into, its, into the uh, landscape in an ecologically sound way and also for its on-site milk processing production, the uh, rotational grazing system, and its use of renewable energy. Francis, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. So there's been a lot of criticism lately about um, dairy operations. Uh, the vegan crowd, <laughs> I mean, I have plenty of friends who are vegan, but some are pretty radical about uh, about how far they're willing to go, and they don't like dairy farms, period. And you operate a very small and very sustainable farm. You're on the front lines. You've, you've got a dairy farm. You've been doing this for, what, 20 years now, maybe? Well, um, actually, I grew up on a dairy farm, too, so I've been doing it here for almost 30 years in okay. Iowa. Right, yeah. You hear these criticisms, too, I suppose. Yeah, and you know, the first thing is, I don't argue with vegans. I mean, they're fine. I mean, they've made a life choice, and I'm fine with that. And, and I don't try to convince them they should eat anything that they don't want to eat. Fair enough. So, um, however, I think that as far as like things like climate change, you know, and sequestering carbon, there can be a place for animals there. Now, I would say, on the other hand, that most of our livestock production in this country is not good for the climate. It's, it's really, it's, you know, it's like Wendell Berry said, what we've done when we've taken animals off the landscape in ways that were ecologically sound, we've created two pollution problems. One pollution problem with 
industrial crop production and one pollution problem with industrial livestock production. So we're pretty far from where we need to be. Um, and I don't defend dairy in general. And, and I'm always trying to improve our dairy, and I'm not saying we're the perfect model in life either. Right, but you um, you have how many head? We milk about 80 to 90 cows, and we have about 160 of all ages on the farm. And I, what the, the, there's, there's one, one of the uh, criticisms you hear is that uh, cows produce methane, and methane is damaging the atmosphere along with carbon. Uh, is, is that the case when you've got a herd of grass-fed cows? Is methane an well, issue? Cows on, cows on grass do also produce methane. Um, now, if you have higher quality grass, the digestion is better and there's not as much methane produced. Um, but also, cows on grass, they sequester, if you do it right, you sequester a lot of carbon in the soil. So as we rebuild our soil carbon, that's offsetting that. You know, we should, just looking at the bigger picture, since we started farming in Iowa here, we've lost about um, about 60% of our organic carbon in the soil. So we've been deficit spending our ecological capital relative to carbon all these years. And that's and not production system, go ahead. That's not necessary. I mean, that's because of the type of agriculture, of, of an industrial approach to agriculture, correct? Yes, and research shows that if we... Uh, have cows on pasture and we manage it right, then we actually start to build carbon back up. Um, I've got data here from a farmer um, actually in Mississippi. In 10 years, he doubled his soil carbon level. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's pretty complicated. There's a lot of pieces involved here. But the way we're doing it now is, you know, it's not the best in the world. And it has to change. Um, and do you see actually what's really interesting is as we, we begin to sequester carbon in the soil through our farming practices, we have a lot of subsequent effects, you know, beneficial side effects. Like it will improve water quality because we have to improve our practices. It'll improve wildlife habitat. It'll um, reduce erosion and it'll reduce um, it'll, it'll reduce flooding because we're making the soil able to hold more water. So there's a whole cascade of, of beneficial side effects that occur if we start to farm in ways that are more in tune with nature and nature's ecology that actually created our high carbon soils in the first place. Now, is it possible that some of the criticism from vegans and animal welfare advocates uh, about uh, dairy production, is it possible that some of their criticism might actually have a positive impact on getting more farmers to, to take, take seriously the need to be good stewards of the environment? Good point. I, I think that's probably true. Um, I'm remembering back in the early 1990s, um, I, I was seeing in these farm publications about um, docking tails, a seasonal reminder, now, now is the time to dock your cow's tails. Right. And, and I wrote a, a letter to the editor back and they wouldn't publish it. I was explaining how cows need tails. <laughs> and it was funny that in about mm, 15 years, that same magazine said, we aren't supposed to talk, we aren't gonna be recommending docking tails. As a matter of fact, we're recommending not docking tails. Wow. Because and, of the pressure over the years. So it's just things change. Yeah. But you've never docked the tails of your cows. No. Docking tails means cutting in the bone off and all. Right. I know. I we know. Will we will sometimes trim tails that drag on the ground, and then muddy weather can get, you know, mudded up and so on. So that's not a problem. But that's just like giving them a haircut. <laughs> I guess so. Right. Well, if anybody has watched cows, especially in the summertime, you know that that tail is pretty darn handy for keeping the flies off. 
Yeah, interestingly, the tail can reach about halfway up the cowl, and the other, the front half, they can actually shake their skin and, and shake, and they can't do that in the back half where the tail can reach. Oh, really? I didn't, I, I've, I've seen them shake their skin to get flies out. I didn't know that was only a front, of the, front half of the cow feature. Interesting. Well, I've, I've observed that. And yeah. also they swing their head about halfway back, so the tails and their head swing can meet in the middle. And yeah. if you don't have a tail, you know, they're just out of luck. So inquiring, inquiring minds really want to know is why did the cow evolve to be able to stick its tongue all the way up its nose? <laughs> I have not figured that one out. <laughs> well, when you do, let me know, all right? So, um, I, I know one of the other criticisms from uh, from from uh, animal welfare advocates is the uh, killing of male calves. If you know to get a cow to milk, she's got to be bred, and when she's uh, yeah. delivered, you know statistically half of those calves are going to be going to be male, and those are all sent off to slaughter. Yes, half of them are males, and um, what we do is actually we over time um, we've had. In the, our, our vicinity, people have inquired wanting to uh, bull calves to raise, and so they raise them. You know, I never, I don't follow up, but I, I don't sell them to people who raise them for veal calves. Hmm. Um, as as far as I know, they all get raised up into maturity and, and are used for for meat. But they, um, but I don't sell them to anybody who would just like raise them for a few months, like in the dark, and so on, and make a veal calf out of them. Yeah, that um, is. And the, some that, of them are raised by kids, and they, they like use them for forage projects and to learn and so on like that. And, and you're able to be selective and only sell to people who are going to raise them humanely. Well, that's what we you know we don't follow up, but we right, um, right. we know that there are families that raise them. You know, just they only like one or two they want, and I always encourage them to take two, so that they can um, have a buddy. You know, a calf can have a buddy if they're right. social animals. Yeah, um, but we don't. We've had a few times where people wanted like 25 or something, and we don't we don't sell them to those people. Right, good. <laughs> so, hey, uh, one other question. The, there's a lot of discussion about the word milk itself. Uh, I mean, almonds produce milk now, and so does soybeans and coconut and oats. Uh, and there's some controversy, uh, some pushback within the dairy industry saying, no, you can't call those things milk. Milk comes from an animal. Uh, how, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I... I don't really get in a fight about it, but it's kind of like margin, margarine. Margarine was not allowed to be called butter, right? Right. And so there's a sense, it's kind of a like parallel that, it, you know, um, uh, almonds, does it, do they produce milk? They produce almond juice, I guess, but I'm, I'm not going to fight over it. People want to, you know, drink oat milk and, and almond milk, fine, cashew milk. Um, I, I'm of the opinion that if people don't want to drink milk anymore, I'll just, you know, do something else. <laughs> well, fortunately, there seems to be a, enough people who want to and more and more interest in organic milk. And you not only produce organic milk on site, and I think you bottle it there, if I remember correctly. Yes. But you also make uh, yogurt, and um, I can't remember what else. Are there we, other products that you make? Yeah, we make yogurt, and we make several kinds of cheeses. As a matter of fact, we recently started making mozz fresh mozzarella, which people are, are liking. We're making it in a tr traditional Italian way. Um, any, any that I've ever seen in the store, any mozzarella that you see, fresh mozzarella, is made with uh, an acidifier added, like citric acid or mm. something like that, or mm. vinegar. And But we use the, the long overnight process where the culture creates the acidity to make it to the point where you can stretch it. So, um, it, it, you know, it makes it, I think it's a little, you know, a different class of, of mozzarella. Yeah. 
Well, Francis, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Francis Dickey of uh, Radiance Dairy in uh, southeast Iowa. Uh, Francis, good luck with your operations this coming spring, and again, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ed. When we come back, folks, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman is going to join us. He and I will be talking about the rollout of the vaccine allocation plan. Also, we'll be talking about uh, the incidents at the U.S. Capitol building this past week and uh, getting Charles's take on what some have called a riot, some have called an insurrection, some have called the opening salvo of a civil war. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. from Des Moines, Iowa. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. Gateway is a full-service, locally-owned grocery store, and the cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There are some dine-in tables, and you can also order, of course, using Gateway's takeout service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience caring for all creatures great and small. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or just call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. All right, joining us now, Dr. Charles Goldman. Later in the program, he and I are going to be talking about the rollout of the vaccine. But first of all, let's talk about the rollout at the state at the U.S. Capitol last week. Uh, uh, Charles, that was quite a day. Um, were those the first shots of a new civil war, or is that an overstatement? Uh, no, I, I think it's an overstatement. But um, I'm sure anyone who's listening has been inundated, you know, by whatever news media they're listening to or whatever social media they're perusing, you know, with the, with the issues of is incitement and all the other things. And I, I think I'd like to talk about something a little bit different. Okay, what's um, that? There was a, a small a, a small sidebar piece in uh, the Des Moines Register in which a um, poll was done of Republican voters after the events on Wednesday. And 52% of Republicans said Biden was at least somewhat to blame for the violence. And uh, only 28% thought it was Trump's fault. I don't remember that the president-elect Biden uh, was there making any kind of speeches to large crowds and telling them to go down to the Capitol. But nevertheless... Was there any, was there any, any detail about, about how, how that 52% saw Biden playing into the violence? 
Um, well, you know, listening, listening as I often do to the you know more conservative slash right wing slash delusional uh, media, um, <laughs> their interpretation is that because you know Joe Biden didn't immediately come out and say that you know we need to not blame the president because we need to you know go for unity, which is what he's saying, and also because the Democrats supported the violence of Black Lives Matter and, and the other protests through Saturday. It's really their fault. Um, and then, of course, you had the you know complete lunatics like Matt Gates, the Republican from uh, Florida, who basically said, "Well, these are Antifa people dressed up as MAGA people." Yeah, and but, so and so the FBI uh, said no. There was no there's no evidence of an Antifa presence at the at the at the, uh, the riot. Correct. And and believe me, it didn't cross my mind that that's what was going on there. Uh, there may well have been foreign agents acting there because you know some people collect the computers off of the desks of the Congress people. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, which has huge value, obviously, in terms of what might be on it. So maybe, no, maybe, I, maybe, maybe Vladimir Putin himself was in there somehow and, <laughs> and absconding with uh, with uh, with Nancy Pelosi's computer, right? Eh? Well, you know, I, I I think looking at this event, you know, it, it is hard not to ask whether the there is a mass delusion that is occurring among whatever percent of the population is in the president's camp. I'm not saying about every person who voted for Donald Trump. I mean, clearly this is the, these are the hardcore base. But, I mean, it is almost delusional. I mean, here is a group of people calling themselves patriots. By the way, they were also called patriots by various right-wing evangelical groups, which, by the way, um, were involved in getting the permit for the, um, for the gathering. Wait, who got the, uh, who got the permit? Well, the, the, the permit for the gathering was from a group that's affiliated with, it, it was like, uh, I'm trying to remember, a, a women's group, by the way, with whom uh, Clarence Thomas's wife is very highly placed. You know, and then there was a number of uh, right-wing evangelical groups, the Alliance Defending uh, Freedom, and others, um, who were you know, holding gatherings the night before. And Conservative Action Project, Council for National Policy, um, these, these, and Cleta Mitchell, by the way, you know, the, the lawyer who's on the call to uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, is one of the signees to this um, position statement from the Council for National Policy talking about that, um, you know, America has, you know, gotten away from the values of Jesus Christ who founded America, basically, <laughs> is what they're saying. Um, and that they're taking back their country. But anyway, there, there is an element of delusion here. Right. This is supposed to be the law and order patriots. Right. Meanwhile, they assaulted the police. The president said not a word about what happened to the police. This is a person who they the, the police love. Right. Because one of the, one of them one of the one of those police officers was killed. Right. And another one committed suicide. And and when you start seeing more and more of the video, it was unbelievable what was going on. Uh, you know, with Capitol Police. Which videos have um, you watched? Just you know. They're showing more and more of them. I mean, you know, they were beating them up with uh, flagpoles and other things. I mean, it was amazing. More people weren't hurt yeah. or killed. The MSNBC um, clip is pretty, uh, pretty disturbing. Right. But the point is that what's happening here is that you've got certain actors who find it to their advantage to rile up the evangelicals and then think they can control them. But they can't, because they've now unleashed this. And Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, mm -hmm. is a perfect example of what's going on here. 
because he's a, he is both. He is a, he's an opportunist because he wants to be president. He's a, he's an elitist who is you know, you know, Stanford University, Yale Law School clerk for John Roberts, who's trying to present himself as a populist. But more importantly, these are the kinds of things that Josh Hawley says. Josh Hawley talks about the fact that um, secularism has caused all of the social pathologies and that a free government was the only sustainable and suitable government for religious people and that basically the, the only vision that Josh Hawley has is a, is, a nihil, is a binary and nihilistic one, which is either you have a pluralistic and modern society with equality as the goal, and that is inherently worthless in his view, or you have a right-minded elite of religiously pure individuals who so, should capture the levers of government. So kind of like um, Iran used to be under the Ayatollah Khomeini. Right. No, <laughs> but what my point is is that what he says sounds exactly like what William Barr said at Notre Dame. Mm. It sounds what, like what Clarence Thomas has said you know, in the past, and others in the government. You have to understand that there is a group in, the, in, in our govern, government, not just a small group, who truly believe that aligning themselves with a sociopath, Donald Trump, is justified by the end of beating back the inevitably um, corrupt... Well, well I, would say, the, I would say that the, the people who, who rioted at the U.S. Capitol, I don't think they would consider themselves sociopaths. No, 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 no. They are tools. They are tools of this. But the point is, is that you ask yourself, but they, they, they are lied to continuously to keep them believing that it's not, it's, not just, it's, not just, it's not just dissing the liberals. It's that liberals represent the free will, equal society, which God does not want to exist in the United States. They truly believe this, and therefore anything they do is justified. So you've got that thread going through not just an element of the crowd that listened to Donald Trump, but also there are true believers around Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump is not a true believer. Donald Trump is a sociopath who has no empathy to the point that he couldn't even find the empathy to say he was sorry about the death of the Capitol policeman. Um, so let me, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this, Charles. Do you think that Trump has ruined his prospects for a 2024 presidential run? Yes. Okay. Yes, and I think that's the only good thing that comes out of Wednesday is that there are now enough people out there who are, you know, who are not. They, yes, they voted for Trump, but they they are not part of the true the true base. Who now say, okay, this well, is what it looks like. This well, is what nihilism, anarchy looks like in the country, which everybody has a gun. Well, they were lucky. Well, let me they were lucky let, that let, nobody was killed. Let me let me ask you this: the, the do, you, do you think that uh, what happened to the U.S. Capitol? Is uh, the end of the uh, Trump-inspired revolution against the election, or are we going to continue to see, and maybe even see an escalation of that kind of activity, that kind of violence? Uh, the latter. I think that there is no question that we are looking at more Timothy McVeigh-like events. And McVeigh was, and I actually know the, the government psychiatrist, psychologist who uh, spoke with McVeigh at length. I mean, he was, he was a sociopath. So Clearly. It, it's not that I'm saying that everybody in the movement is a sociopath, but there's enough people who are sociopaths who can be, as they were manipulated to do what they did on Wednesday, can be manipulated to do other things. And things that are and more there's also a white nationalist something. movement which feels totally empowered at this point. Yeah. And you don't think that's, uh, that, that's going to fade away with the uh, passing of Donald Trump as president? 
No, because, again, I, I, I truly believe that the uh, particularly Republican politicians see the advantage to courting that group, and now the radical Christian evangelicals are, are absolutely convinced that these last four years was the best years for them, and they wanted to continue. So they we, they made America great again, and now it's going to go down the tubes under Biden. They truly believe. Yeah. Because, you know, if you ask if you ask the average Trump voter, what is it that Donald Trump did for you that was so great? They really can tell you anything. I mean, that's, I, I don't know what you're finding out, but that seems to be what I have read from others. You know, so but, far both pe- the, both people who I've interviewed who voted for Trump was kind of well, I really more was a vote against Biden. <laughs> so, but let me add one more question before we got to run to a break here, Charles. Um, the inauguration is coming up. And there are some who are concerned about potential violence, potential rioting associated with the inauguration. There's also likelihood of a much stronger police presence. What What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, 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 I don't think that there will be anything akin to what happened on Wednesday because, remember, this was allowed to happen by essentially leaving the Capitol Police on an island. The Defense Department inhibited the pre-placement of National Guard troops beyond using them to uh, direct traffic. Uh, they did it on federal property where the Metropolitan Police Department had no jurisdiction. And, and why is that? Why, why, did they, they, why did they normally allow... It was intentional. It why? Was intentional. Why? What's the motive? Because they wanted this to happen. I don't think there's any question. Why, why would they... I mean, again, what's, what's the advantage to them of this happening? In terms of... The advantage to whom? The, the military. The, no, there's no the, advantage to the military. What? No, the... Trump had control over the National Guard. Okay, all right. So, so it was so Trump and you say you say it all, it all goes back to Trump. Okay, right. I yeah. mean, he all right, wanted gotcha. he, he he got what he wanted. Hmm. You know, and I don't think there's any question he desired that there be a, a episode at the Capitol. Hmm. I don't know that he knew it would be so bad, but he you know he, he it was it was a spectacle for him. Yeah, I, I think that is how sociopathic he is. Yeah, and uh, and there will be. I suspect there will be uh, efforts to uh, hold him criminally responsible. Do you think so? Um, difficult. I think they yeah, they will try. I think he's going to claim that what he said is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, it you know to to make the case for incitement, you really have to meet three criteria, and, and it would seem to someone on on the left that he clearly meets these three criteria. But you know he's going to argue that it's political speech. And he didn't. He he did tell them contemporaneously to go to the Capitol, but mm-hmm. whether right, right. you know whether he was saying to them go rip it apart or burn it down, you know he didn't really say that directly. Um, you know, and there was a lot of in, 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 you know intimation by other speakers. You know, Mo Brooks certainly one of the most reprehensible senators in the Senate, and that you have to go a long way in one that has Ted Cruz. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, Giuliani talking about, you know, specifically saying we have to have violence, essentially. Yes. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, I think there's going to be an attempt to hold him criminally liable, but I don't You're not know optimistic, it's not yeah. going to be a slam dunk. I think, I think a lot of the commentators... In the mainstream media think it's a slam dunk, and yeah. it's not. No, it's not. Hey, Charles, we got to run to a quick break, and uh, when we come back, stick with us. Uh, Charles, we're going to talk about the uh, vaccine allocation rollout. All right, folks, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to the uh, local businesses that make this program possible, thanks to Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, curbside pickup, and carryout. You can learn more at Hawk, that's H-O-Q, HawkTable.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, welcome back to the program again. Dr. Charles Goldman with us here as we now switch gears a bit and talk about the uh, coronavirus vaccine rollout. Charles, um, some say this should have been a no-brainer, but I guess maybe um, more pensive minds would have realized that it would have been somewhat complicated and controversial. Well, mostly complicated. I'm not sure it's actually controversial. Um, yeah. The problem, the problem has been that while there's been a lot of talk about how maybe we should be triaging differently or we should be you know, just giving one shot and hoping for the best until we are sure that we have more, you know, vaccination available later on. The, the reality is, is there's plenty of vaccine available. It's just that because of the needs of these two vaccines, which have to, particularly the the um, Pfizer one that has to be kept super cooled. Yeah, it's very difficult to distribute it widely. And they're trying to go with a very decentralized approach. And really, for, especially these two vaccinations, the Moderna and, and the Pfizer, they really should have gone with some sort of mass approach, which is you come to a football stadium, you, you vaccinate tens of thousands of people in one place. And, and the idea of going out to nursing homes and stuff. Well, is, it, currently, currently at football stadiums, that wouldn't work. <laughs> well, There's hardly anybody there. Well, I understand that, but what I'm saying is, is that you you set it up as a mass vaccination center. Oh, gotcha. Okay, you're not talking. You're not talking about going to the actual games. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so, but, you, but, you know, and the the other problem has been that um, the 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 prioritization is too complex to implement because you know the first group was healthcare workers and um, people in vulnerable conjugate environments like prisons, assisted living, 
you know, in nursing homes. Right, right. Um, and that's fairly straightforward, but that's only about nine, maybe, I think maybe it's about 15 million people. Um, the bigger problem now is what, what are you going to do next? Because you've got all these schemes where they're rating people on risk by age, risk by comorbidity, whether essential workers or not. And so you're having to say, so as a 27-year-old healthy Latino uh, bus driver, should he or she get that vaccine before the store manager is 57 with diabetes and is white? You know, it's just, it's too complicated. And it's just going so to how, how would you, how would you do it if you could wave the magic wand and, and make it happen? Well, how would you do it? Uh, you know, there's there, there's there's basically an excellent piece in the Times a couple of days ago in which they asked a, a number of public health and ethicist people about it, and they came up with different ideas. Uh, the the uh, first idea was um, to vaccinate basically everybody over 55 um, with no stratification as the next group. That, that's almost 100 million people. They represent about 30% of the American population, but they also represent 92% of the people who died from COVID. Right, everybody who wanted to be over the age of 55. Correct, right, right. right. It, it, nobody is saying we should use mandatory vaccination, I'll get that in a minute. And then, interestingly, they recommended a lottery for the order based on your birthday, just you know, kind of like the old draft lottery in the 70s, for whom would go next after that. You know, figuring that if you, if you hit people over 55, not only are you hitting the high, highest risk group for death, you're also going to hit a lot of essential workers at right. the same time. So, um, is, is, you is, know, another idea was to go the other way, which is to assume everybody's at risk at this point because every state is red in terms of their rates, and prioritize vaccinations in highest incident areas of a state. Um, I do think it's fascinating that we use the color red to indicate prevalence of virus, um, voting Republican, and communism. But anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> you know, and so, which would be to accept everybody's at risk at this point because of the way we handle this. And using a cutoff of like a, a per capita incidence of 150 or 200 per 100,000 to concentrate the vaccination programs in the areas where we already know that people are at the highest risk for transmitting to each other. But no, but no, um, but right now we've, there, there's, there's a process in place is an approach in place and it's not going to change right so this is your your recommendations are you know if we had done it differently but is anybody in a position no no that's not true that's that's not true because the process in place was that they abdicated to the states and each state is is viewing this differently okay so so when kim reynolds listened to this program she hears you she might say aha he's got a great point we're going to do it this way they could do that we'll we'll take we'll take the goldman approach right no they could absolutely do it um, you know, and the other way, the other is don't bother with people who are hesitant to the vaccination. Don't waste time, you know, with public outreach to people who are hesitant, except in the vulnerable groups to try to target to them their vulnerability. And um, if, if 40 percent of the people in this country don't want to get the vaccination, that means 60 percent of the people do. You need to identify them, and between 60% of people getting vaccinated and the people who've already gone through having had COVID, you're going to reach herd immunity without having to vaccinate the 40 who are resistant. So now that's that's something different than I've heard from other 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 physicians, including Dr. Fauci, I believe, is that you need like 70 to 80% in order to achieve herd immunity. You're, yeah, but people, who, but, but you have to include people who've had COVID and recovered as part of the herd immunity. They okay. carry immunity, which may even be better as far as we know than that carried to a vaccine. 
Okay. So and, that, and Fauci admits that number is is based mostly on veterinary type studies and you know the data on on the flu. Um, there are people who believe using chaos theory math that you could do it with thirty percent of the population. Yeah. Right. Um, so. You know, I, I would definitely be against mandatory vaccination because I think that you're just asking oh, yeah, for that, even fewer people getting the vaccine, and it would be absolutely a disastrous uh, thing politically right now. Yeah, politically it would be, be disastrous, and morally it would be questionable. Yeah. Right. So what? So before we have to before we run out of time here, Charles, what's the, what's the any other key points you think people should need to be. Uh, thinking about in terms of uh well i I think the other problem with this fact these two vaccinations are that you have to do you have to do them within uh, three to four weeks of the first twice and the second the second vaccination is going to cause more symptoms than the first and the next vaccine up from j and j and jansen is probably going to be a single shot and that is going to i think be much more acceptable to people um and public health wise would be a better approach i don't know what the storage requirements are and that vaccine may be approved early February, is what everyone's thinking. Okay. So the, uh, I, I really don't know how, how you can keep a, vi- a, a virus stored at, what is it, 75 degrees below zero? Like, yeah, minus 90 or something. Minus yeah. 90. I, I, don't, right. I don't know how you do that <laughs> for, with any, any reliability, anyway. Yeah, well, it's, ama- it's amazing, actually, how well they've done with that. I mean, how they were able to do it in terms of, the shipping of it and yeah. that so many facilities had that capability, you know, I, I don't even think they freeze see, sperm at that. See, think of the carbon footprint there. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, that's <laughs> absolutely true. Charles, I got to run to a break. Um, really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on as this, uh, as the uh, story of the pandemic continues to unfold and hopefully uh, heading in the right direction, it sounds like. Well, I hope so. Yeah. All right. Hey, Charles, thanks so much, folks. When we come back, Kathy Burns joining us. We're going to be talking about um, agriculture as it was represented in a very thoughtful and uh, provocative film called Interreflections. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. our progressive alternative from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, so before we talk with Kathy Burns, I want to thank our anchor business sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, and they've got a cafe that's now open uh, seven days a week for lunch and supper, and the uh, cafe is open on the weekends for brunch. You can do some limited cafe dining 
or use their takeout program. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, again, welcome back to the program. And again, Kathy Burns with us with uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And we both had the chance to watch a, a film recommended by Lee Camp. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, uh, Lee. Inter-Reflections. And uh, overall, I thought it was a great film. But we want to talk about the agricultural component of it. Right. Um, it was it was a, a very interesting film. I was a little overwhelmed by the artsiness of it. But uh, the reason we're talking about it is that it makes specific reference to the role that agriculture has played in both feeding uh, the population of the earth and contributing to the destruction of the environment that makes it possible for the earth to sustain life. Kind and, of ironic. Yeah, and, and the starting point is um, the whole, the economic system we live under in this country and elsewhere is rotten to the core. There is no component of it that values health, uh, human well-being, uh, sustainability. It's all about money. Point well taken. Totally agree. And then the premise is that this all started because of agriculture. In times when we were all hunters and gatherers, you know, accumulation of wealth wasn't really an issue until we started producing more food than we could eat. Yeah, the movie takes sell. place in three different timelines. Uh, the first one, I think, is 2019, so just, just when the film was being made. The second one was 50 years in the future of that, when a supposed great transition took place. And then the next timeline is... 100 years from that yeah. and um, obviously we're not doing any spoilers on the film it's obvious <laughs> that humanity did not face utter destruction because the, the although we tried we the tried future, the future timeline <laughs> is is for historians talking about how humanity almost destroyed the earth and especially themselves due to greed capitalism uh, it is social and economic structures that valued money and possessions. And the propensity to engage in warfare and ignore science, for example, relevant to climate change. But yeah, the whole, the whole let's blame agriculture, you know, to some extent, they've got a good point. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but, but actually, we weren't all just hunters and gatherers. I mean, That's we, true. the collective we, the historical we. Uh, the uh, that is one of the the things I take a little bit of uh, offense to in the film. I think it simplifies that uh, even the word prehistoric peoples, and that's a that's a um, a negative term. People who were existing on Earth before a lot of history was recorded in certain ways. And there was history back then. It was a different kind of it, history. And it wasn't recorded <laughs> in the same way. Some yeah. of it was oral, oral tradition. Oral tradition. But the the premise is that. The hunters and gatherers were more earth-friendly than agriculturalists, and it's actually a fact that a lot of people, even in, you know, recorded as early as 1000 AD, were very heavily into agriculture. People in this, on this continent were um, yeah. really skilled and scientific about their agriculture. Our, our Meskwaki friends, you know, their, their, their society was very uh, heavily ag agricultural. I mean, they... They covered the gambit, you know, hunting, gathering, and growing food. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, kind of what we do. <laughs> we do it all. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't do we a try. lot of hunting. <laughs> Sometimes we hunt for the right chocolate at our favorite, favorite market. I used to, I used to bow hunt more, but I uh, kind, of, kind of have got, gotten away from that. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was a good film. But, again, I think it's a simplistic view of agriculture. Mm -hmm. But, but do you, I mean, I would say that, 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 that pinpointing agriculture as the, transition from whence this uh, this economic system devoid of, 
of, of real, you know, humanitarian core was able to, to form because it created wealth and imbalances in equity. I, I think there's a good point to be well, made there. And, and I wish the movie, I wish the folks who made the movie had specified industrialized agriculture because, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's really what the problem is. And they were saying agriculture created excess, which meant that people had stores of supplies and quote, wealth, and that's what started warring between but, tribes. But and- don't you think it started with, uh, e- even before agri- industrial agriculture, when the, the human being, the serf, the slave, was the agricultural unit, was the, the, the labor unit that you were okay. able to use uh, at very little cost to produce this great wealth? That's, that's, I think that's also somewhat addressed in yeah. the movie and, and has a, a lot of truth to it. What I don't agree is the film contending that um, the planet can sustain 30 billion people I think that's, oh, that, that does not sound like a beautiful place. Uh, well, <laughs> the simplistic billion. solution, and we won't, again, provide spoilers to the movie, but the solution that the, the, the folks in the movie who were sort of the heroes who created the great transition that helped the earth and humanity survive uh, created a, a system whereby they don't, we don't really know in the final um, few minutes of the film, we're never told how people ate, where their food came from. And I would have yeah, to guess gets, it would be grown somewhere. That part seems to be forgotten. It was in, just yeah. sort of <laughs> in the, left in out. The, in the 30 billion people utopia. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, that that was, uh, you know, the, the movie has received a lot of great reviews. It has also received some criticism for having too simplistic a solution that you can just unroll a new thing and, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. And humans aren't still going to be humans with inherent greed and and i don't know um once certain cultural systems are um taken back to the basics of just plain humans versus humans getting along with humans that's fine but otherwise it may not pan out well thanks uh, for joining us kathy and thanks to our other guests today stephen hickenbottom uh charles goldman and francis tickey um, thanks again to you, the audience, for listening today and to the stations around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can subscribe to the forum on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and you can follow the Fallon Forum on Facebook, if you dare. And you can uh, also sign up for my weekly blog on the Fallon Forum website or just send me an email, ed at fallonforum.com. Help us continue to provide a radio and online platform to voices that the big corporate media don't want you to hear. Again, thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Hardina. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.